You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome, one and all, to a genre-hopping, movie-reviewing, and reappraising podcast. It's Be Real on the Playlist Podcast Network and brought to you by the California College of the Arts' Writing MFA program. My name's Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. What genre are we hopping to, and how are you? Answer those in any order you want. I'm fine. We are doing military heist films, uh... Sort of military heist films there can't be three of those well after <laughs> jc shander's netflix original film triple frontier there certainly are, there are three of them that's right so yeah we're talking about uh movies where a little war over here and i mean the war's not that hard for these guys so why not uh go over here and take some unclaimed drug money or gold possessed by a dictator or gold possessed by the nazis yeah, one or the other. We're talking about Triple Frontier, as Noah said. 1970s Kelly's Heroes, a prime Clint Eastwood film from the era, and 1999's Three Kings, David O. Russell. Uh, we're going to start with Triple Frontier, because that's the one that just dropped on Netflix, right? Let's go. Let's go. Okay, so J.C. Shandor, this is his fourth film. Uh, I go nuts for, for J.C. I like him you know that, a lot, right? too. I think I was said this on Letterboxd uh, for the one person who was going to make sure I didn't plagiarize myself, but like I think he's like the best B-plus, A-minus filmmaker around. He's pretty good. Uh, I first uh, interacted with him with Margin Call, yeah. his first feature-length movie, which is has everybody in it uh, and is about like the moments leading the 24 hour period leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. And this movie has everyone in it. Uh, Your, your team that goes to South America to steal this drug money out of the jungle because their military pensions aren't cutting it includes Ben Affleck, Oscar Isaac, Garrett Hedlund, Charlie Hunnam, Pedro Pascal. Um, He's got a real way with uh, casting and then getting getting some good stuff out of actors um which is part of partially what excited me about this yeah it like has a lot of uh pedigree behind it but you know as they say or as i say all netflix movies have one fatal flaw (laughs) i really do like this this take on your part and part of that pedigree we should we should say is that the script is co-written uh, by Mark Bull, frequent collaborator with Catherine Bigelow. She's an executive producer on the film. Uh, I was just reading on Film School Rejects. Yeah, this movie has been in like development hell since the mid-2000s when Bigelow and Bull were going to make it themselves and Shandor jumped on something like eight years later and then Paramount was like, actually, we're starting to realize that uh, you know mid-list military films aren't making a lot of money. Uh, I couldn't find a posted budget for it, but... I'm sure it was not cheap, and uh, Netflix does yeah. not. Netflix doesn't care about that stuff. That's so interesting because, like, this is clearly like a fifty million dollar movie. Totally, that's what I was thinking. And like, maybe it's like me- dressed up to look like a fifty million dollar movie, and it's maybe closer to like a thirty million dollar movie because there's like a little bit of bad digital in there. Um, but like, just the amount of like helicopters and explosions and like cool like locations. practical effects and the locations and the cast, yeah. you'd think that like this movie 
was expensive. I would imagine. But like, why then didn't it get a theatrical distribution? I think you're thinking about it in reverse. I think that this was just an extremely distressed asset, as they say. And Ben, like in between sort of like, uh, you know, 2015, 16, 17, Catherine Bigelow put out a movie in Detroit that flopped. Uh, the last sort of Ben Affleck, this is a real life drama about man, live by night, hemorrhaged $80 million. I think this is just a situation where... Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot about live by night. Yeah, nobody saw that shit. It was one of the worst, fl- it was a Mortal Engine style flop. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. And I was trying to like piece it together like as I was watching it. And you kind of like see why this movie was not released in theaters. Because it's kind of unsure in 2019, even like just off the bat, like what it is. Right. Like, is it a heist movie? Is it a military movie? Or is it like a larger commentary about like what the military means or is it a larger commentary of is it like a a present day treasure of the sierra madre kind of thing and like it never truly even from the opening some reviews i've read said like it's the ending that doesn't land but even for me like the opening is sort of like what is this movie right what are you what are we doing here and like why is it like two and a half hours long this one is two is it just two? Yeah, it's like two five. Um, and, and not to talk about uh, is two five box office stuff all day, but to kind of wrap around to the point we were making. If you put this, if this was in theaters right now, it is not making more than forty fifty million dollars. It would only make its budget back. There's no way this would be a hundred million dollar movie. Yeah, you're right. Everything we've done for the last seventeen years, with nothing to show for it. You've been shot five times for your country, and you can't even afford to send your kids to college. If we had accomplished half the things that we've accomplished in any other profession, we'd be set for life. I'm your masters of war. The question is, do we finally get to use our skills for our own benefit? We're going to get Gabriel Martin Larea. He's got over $75 million in cash. If we're not gone forever after you make your move... We are dead. We need to hunt quickly. So all of those burly men who are cast in this movie were in a former special ops unit together, uh, and they're brought together again by Oscar Isaac's Pope, who is doing a sort of... One of the weird things about the, the opening scene is that the mystery in this like South American drug bust that opens the movie is like whether Pope is supposed to be there. There's like a point where he, uh, you know, explodes the front out of a discotheque and then hands the bazooka back to this cop. And he was like, nice shot. And it's like, wait, are you not supposed to be here? Is this whole, like, it's unclear how much of this movie is like illegal, what it's depicting, you know? Right. And I also think on a narrative level, that is a mistake to open the movie with this bigger question of, you know, what is Pope Oscar Isaac doing in Brazil? I think is it's where Brazil. He is? And then creating this, the dynamic be he's the protagonist and this 
kingpin named Lorea is the antagonist of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then that's the first 15 minutes. And then it totally gives up on that and wants you to buy into the camaraderie between these six men, which has not been developed other than through like a series of very contrived, like let's go to the fight at the local elementary school. Like what is what, like why did you feel like you didn't understand who these men were to each other? And then, like, when you're in that locker room, it's like, come on, guys, are we going to do this, like, highly illegal thing? And then they all kind of jump on board really quickly. It's like, who are these guys? What are these? I know what you're saying. It's not the setup that bothered me so much because I think that part of what this movie ends up being is also, like, trying to accurately depict the way these, like, exquisitely trained weapons who are now like going to work for private companies talk to each other and they can always rebond and they can always jump back in and it's usually no nonsense it's the fact that the characters are not uh well defined from there um i like the dynamic between them all um but it doesn't have a quite enough of that contrived like well he's the you know um he's the brawler he's the loose cannon i I think they're not well defined enough charlie hunnam and garrett headland are like indistinguishable from each other I think that the prologue of this movie needs to be them like in combat together like five to ten years earlier. Sure, that's fair. And then you cut to them being ten years older and like their bodies as they self-describe falling apart. Right. And like not being able to sell condos or be a good mixed martial artist or Mm -hmm. whatever. And then you care more. I think the movie is too preoccupied with this kingpin and the morality of like – well, if we just take away all his money, then technically it's everybody's money because, like, he's a bad guy. And why would why would you want to have that theoretical moral argument? Like, that's not an interesting polemic to unpack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just get these guys into like a. We were texting during it. And I was I was lamenting that this movie was not like a smarter, like a thinking man's lone survivor. Sure. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I think that J.C. Shandor is sort of like notoriously like a little bit of a shifty smarty pants about the way he does these he movies. Is. And and Berg, I mean, uh, and Peter Berg is the sort of like, you know, pick your path as a movie fan. Do you like the sort of like dark, more left leaning, like what's going on here with Shandor? Or do you like the Wahlberg Berg just like, you know, we did it for America and you like yeah, America, I just kind right? of picture... Peter Berg, like, on a lot somewhere in his office with the lights off, just wrapped in the American flag. And then, like, some production assistant comes in and is like, we have a script that talks about uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, that oil rig that exploded. We have something about the Boston uh, Marathon bombing. Mm -hmm. And he, like, he comes out from underneath the hood (laughs) of the flag and is just like, I'll take that. Right. Exactly. Any updates on the Kingdom sequel production assistant? No, sir. <laughs> Can I actually lay on you my sort of Shandor theory? Because I've been working on it. Please. Um, so I think that after rewatching Margin Call and Most Violent Year, he is just, his movies are pretty slippery because he's interested <laughs> in anti heroes, except for the fact that, unlike, you know, sort of the golden age tv anti-heroes that sort of like cemented the term more in our consciousness they're just like sort of traditional 
not very flashy like genre films and he's not really like aggrandizing the people it's just that you start to listen to the way that they talk about themselves and realize that they are the cinematic equivalents of Gordon Gecko and for Margin Call or Jason Bourne for this movie or Michael Corleone for a most violent year except that the way that they get their anti-heroism out to you is in such a common American tongue. And if you, if you listen to the way they talk in this movie, Oscar Isaac slowly starts more and more to be like, guys, we, we've earned this. We deserve this. And you step back and you're like, well, just because you did something hard doesn't mean that it was worthwhile. But that's such like an endemic American thought. Um, in the same way that Kevin Spacey talks in Margin Call or Oscar Isaac talks in Most Violent Year, um, that like you don't realize that they're anti-heroes until like it's too late, and the movie doesn't indict them for you, and it makes for a lot of ambiguity. He's like a little. He's like afraid of being an Oliver Stone, which I think is a mistake. Mm, you think he go sets for up it. these. Yeah, he sets up these like truly like American questions about wealth and the distribution of it. Um, you know, even in uh, that fucking boat one, all is lost. Robert, all is lost. Like it still gets at like a level of like masculine privilege and like how are we supposed to die and like what hard thing are we supposed to like get through yeah. to like have it be quote unquote worth it. But like where Oliver Stone would do something wacky and like sort of say outright that like Nixon was a criminal or like <laughs> Vietnam you know, is terrible. Vietnam is terrible. He, I think Shandor like wants his audience to sort of figure that out. Like I think there is a read here about, you know, f- like drug wars mm-hmm. and like the what the military does to young men that like it kind of like runs up to the door of that and like knocks and like the audience opens it. It's like, so you have that scene with Charlie Hunnam being like, you know, that was all bullshit, but you should probably stay in the army and not go to the private sector kind of thing. Right. And then it like runs away and never addresses that again. Yeah. Like VA issues could have been such a like larger piece of this. But then it would have been two and a half hours, three sure. hours long. Yeah. So like, what, I think what we're trying to pinpoint here and remains elusive is sort of like the ways in which that's good and bad. What's this movie about? Right. I, like that's what I'm trying to pin down. What is this movie about? I mean – Because then they get to the jungle and they're just like checking out this guy. So here's like – so all the three movies have this thing where one of our characters like gets a note or gets a tip that – somebody bad has like a fuck ton of money and there's a window of time in which it will be very easy to get to and no one will ask any questions if they like get rid of it um i mean your quintessential heist movie definitely uh and in this one it's that lorea has this house and the house like is his safe and there's like gazillions of dollars like in the house somewhere. And on Sunday mornings, his family goes to church, but he never goes to church lest he leave his money even momentarily. Um, so they go in, they scope it out. They confirm that this is true. And then Oscar Isaac's just like, well, let's fucking let's go for it and steal it. Cause they go down there under the assumption that it's like somehow involved with the Brazilian government like a military operation to stop this guy. But really it's just Oscar Isaac being like, let's rip off this kingpin. Yep. 
And then I just didn't think the moment when they're like, fuck it, we're in was big enough. And then they like are suddenly in the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it all happens really fast. And again, like the something that either I think I think it worked for me, though. Uh, we're going to head towards spoiler territory here, though, by the way. So if you still want to fire fun, up Triple Frontier, you know, maybe skip ahead 15 minutes. There's not the a show. ton of spoilers in any of these movies because they're all like morality plays about like what money does to people. It's true. Uh, spoiler, bad things. But the heist, I think, is over by minute 50 of this movie. And then you have the more Treasure of the Sierra Madre illusion that Noah made earlier, which is basically just like can we haul thousands of pounds of cash across the Andes mountains to the Pacific ocean, (laughs) which is a fascinating question, but then it becomes a sort of different kind of movie and which is a little frustrating for our genre play. Um, But I think I liked it more when they just, yeah, when they just like, you know, all bets were I kind of like the simplicity of like a Kelly's heroes where they don't get the gold until the, they don't even see the gold until the absolute end. I think that's like the narrative problem with this movie is that we get the gold, AKA all this money too quickly. And then it just becomes literally too cumbersome for either these guys or the movie to like carry with them. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of strange seeing them like moving all these suitcase things around. Yeah. And I mean, and three Kings also like has that sort of part of it, but in this one particularly, like they have so much cash on them that they can't get a helicopter to 10,000 feet, which is a great scene. There's like a big, that is a great scene where, uh, Pedro Pascal is is trying to elevate this hanging bag of cash over the the final crest of the Andean Ridge. <laughs> they can right. see the ocean and they cannot do it. I but I really like that sort of um you know both you and the men are like eyeballing it as to how much of this money can we afford to lose and still have it be worth it? And I, th- where I think this movie succeeds, like I said, with that sort of like, is uh, doing a hard thing in and of itself worth it because of the degree of difficulty, is that it it does play well with the viewer. Like we all have this idea of what it lives to like, or what it means to live within our means. But like the minute you toss out some other figure, you're like, wait, is that the new figure? Have the goalposts moved forever? Um, like, cause I don't want just 5 million if you show me duffel bags of 500. Um, I think the movie's pretty effective in that way. I agree. But I also think the movie, much like the characters, like doesn't know how big the bites should be that they take of this cash. Mm. You know, like I was kind of pulled out of it. Frankly, there's a scene where they're in the house and like, they've discovered where all the cash is and Ben Affleck just like, will not stop like pulling the cash from the where it is right and everyone around him is like we have so much money like we don't we could never even spend as much as we have like let's go and he goes like no just a couple more bags and i feel like that is also a problem like with this script where this movie could have been like a tighter like buck 45 and like done something i think more and put this in more of like a thriller and less of a drama space hmm. where if it was more economical with like just how much weight it was going to carry. Like I didn't – I don't know that this movie needed that scene where they're burning the money. 
You know, I think that's a weird anti-climax to have in this film where it becomes about like, ha ha, we just did it to do it, you know, because I don't think these guys are your quintessential army, marine, whatever people. No, they're not normal like they Americans. Clear- no, and you figure that out very quickly, and they really don't have as much discipline as you would believe people in the military have. And so if you can suspend your disbelief beyond that, like don't make the movie just about like, haha, we did something hard, and now we're just going to like blow it up because we can. I disagree with your read on that scene, though. I think that they're all like chuckling because of, not because like they're uh, over it, but because like the irony is is too thick to do anything else but laugh. But I think the irony is too thick for a viewer, too, to do anything else and, like, kind of roll one's eyes. Okay, that's fair. I kind of like that the... I think that the main drama is the fact that these guys... And I I agree, this would all be better with the suggested prologue that you mentioned. Um, But that they've all come back together because they trust each other more than anything. And it's the only part of their lives that they've ever been able to trust. And But the cracks, the cracks are showing. The Ben Affleck being like, "I look, all right, fine. I put in 12 more minutes into the schedule so we can take more money. Like I said, it was going to be 40 minutes. It's actually 52. And they don't fucking believe him because he's never done that before. They're like, you've never missed a hard out in your life. Or the fact that Oscar Isaac lies to them in the beginning. It's like the unit is not what it once was. So we've gone heavy on theme. Let's talk about some of the performances in this movie. Does anyone stand out to you? I thought that Garrett Hedlund was the best of the, the only person really like giving a lot of energy to this. But nobody has any right to survive, spoiler alert, a movie who does as many like hillbilly yelps as he does. Like anytime they do anything, he's like, yeah, this is going to be great. And it's like, this guy needs to die. This guy needs to die or like see his brother die or something horrible needs to happen to him. And then when the inevitable person dies, who dies, um, he's the one who reacts most emotionally because he's like the emotional character. But it's also like, you haven't talked to this dude most of the movie. Right, like, why right. are you so pissed? Yep. I think my fave might have been Pedro Pascal. And I don't know if that's so much because of like what he's doing or just because he is in, he's the pilot. He's like a little more staid, um, you know. He doesn't quite have the doesn't quite have the same shoulders as everyone else, but he's got some good lines too. There are not a ton of good lines in this movie, but when the movie can actually convince you that they're just shooting the shit, it's pretty good. They're walking down the hallway, and he's like, uh, he's still deciding whether or not to go, and he says <laughs> to Oscar Isaac, "I'm sorry, I called your shit bullshit." Um, but it's still a bad idea. And then he kind of does the Sully later when he's like landing the helicopter and like they are crashing and it's just fucking carnage. Uh, and he just goes, <laughs> bad landing. It's like super understated. It's great. It is. I think Oscar Isaac has a couple of good lines where he's like, I don't need a pilot with a license. I just need what I can trust. Right. Yeah. That's a good line. But I otherwise feel like Oscar Isaac is doing what his character Pope is doing and just sort of like dragging these other actors through the plot of this movie in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, We should talk about Affleck. Affleck's terrible. Like, I don't feel bad saying that Affleck is so lethargic and he looks like physically awful. He's very puffy. He's very puffy and like not in a like dad bod, like there is like a, a well-toned Navy SEAL under this fat. It's he just looks puffy. I yeah. I think 
that he has he has that faded movie star quality though that you can only get from a super faded movie star um <laughs> and i think if the theme was again all the themes that we've been picking apart were stronger his performance would work better but like yeah there you know oscar isaac goes to meet him when he's trying to hawk condos and he can't do it and you're like is that Ben Affleck? He doesn't look in the same way that Oscar Isaac is like, is that Red Fly? Because I, I think I see my friend in there, but like, I don't know if I want to go to the mat with this guy. Yeah, I was hoping that we'd just get to see his like back tattoo at some point, but alas. Shirts on. Shirts on nearly always, yep. even though they're in the jungle. That's right. For the majority of this movie. I love how they're all like living in the same town. Oh, yeah. Are they? Like, you think these guys who were, like, thrown together by, like, military admin, whatever, wouldn't have been like, let's all pick the same guys from Dallas. (laughs) Then they can be friends afterwards. Right. And and do very illegal things. And let's put these two brothers together, too. That makes a lot of sense for military stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, So, let's... Let's spoil this real quick, like all the way, because I think we have one spoiler problem to talk about, right? So the spoiler, pause here if you want to go see it, right? is that Ben Affleck, is, he dies. And the he's end. the only one. He's the only one to die, but he, he, he dies pretty unceremoniously. And yeah. then we have to look at his like dead, bloated corpse for a while, too. And then they're like hauling it along, just like they will haul along um, Spike Jones and Three Kings, and much lighter. Corpse. Yeah, much lighter corpse. But I would definitely rather haul Spike Jones in 1999 than <laughs> <laughs> Ben Affleck in 2019. Right. Oh man. I mean, and then you have the metaphorical baggage of that hauling. Um, God. But. And I was going to like push back on you when you were texting me this because it just felt like simplistic. But I think it actually is this simple. You're right. This is not the kind of movie where four out of five guys can make it basically unscathed. Yeah. No, you need to lose at least half of the team. Yes. It's got to be just Oscar Isaac left. And then he feels so badly that he brought all of his friends into the scheme. And then you have this like reckoning at the end. But then like maybe he keeps the money. Yeah, or maybe there's one guy who's like so fucked up just to teach Oscar a lesson. But you can't do 80% survival. I thought, frankly, it was going to be at the end, like only one person could like get on the boat with all the money or something. And Oscar Isaac was going to like shoot Charlie Hunnam, who was left. Wow. Yeah. But that didn't happen. No. Instead, a much more boring movie unfolded. It's just another thing that's weird. This is a, it's it's like a it's a pretty simple movie that amid all of this I had a perfectly good time watching it. Oh I, sure, I was like watching all these great actors climb over rocks and like are they going to get to that speedboat? Um, and like uh, oh god, please don't fire on the cocaine farmers. Um, I thought it was perfectly compelling, but like yeah, you go back and there's just so many odd things. And the s- I think the whole scene in like that little town they go to with the cocaine farmers who we don't actually see farming cocaine. Someone just says that. Right. Or- they could just be innocuous like plant farmers, coca plants. Um, whatever but yeah but the, like that they're in that town and they have to like have that weird conversation with like the town elder which like feels very stereotypical to me right 
It's in a good scene, though, the way Oscar Isaac is so earnest, where he's like, this like giant stack of cash is for your trouble. This is for the family. This is for you. Like, Isaac's going Yeah, yeah. For oh, it. yeah, I like that. This pile's for the mules. This pile's yeah. for the families. And this pile's for you. Right, right. I loved that. Also, I got to do a quick dig on the soundtrack. You cannot use Run Through the Jungle in a war movie in the jungle in 2019. Give me a fucking Two on the nose. And Masters of War, like, it could not have been any more on the nose. Or uh, The Chains. Yeah, Fleetwood uh, Max The Chain, when they get the, everybody yeah, Fleet- together. Yeah, because you can never break the chain of military. I can still hear them saying I can saying still that. hear you sing. <laughs> um, yeah. The only good cue in the whole movie is is the Metallica at the beginning, I think, where it's just like, holy shit, what are we getting into right now? Yeah, and it's like kind of a boring two-hour movie is the answer. No, no. Um, Okay, so here's how we rate movies on the show, and then we'll rate Triple Frontier. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy, too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician-turned-actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or awards bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I give Trip's Frontier a bad good. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know why you thought it was boring. It's not boring. I just thought it went on a little long. Okay. Without like a lot of new stuff developing. Like when the helicopter crashes, 
we're at like what an hour 15 and there's still like 45 minutes of them just like carrying bags around. Like I wanted more to happen. I wanted more people to die. Right. You know, I wanted something like more things to get in their way. And instead it was just like, you can't kill more people that we've never been introduced to. Right. That's terrible. It's like, why don't you kill people that we have been introduced to? Then it'll make it more meaningful. You know what? This movie's a fucking bad, bad. (laughs) Um, I fully intended to come into this podcast today saying it was good, good. But I think after talking, I will jump on the slightly nicer rating that you were on and give it a bad, good. Um, There is just like so many things in the script where it's like, you guys, this could have been easily. But you just kill two more people and have the prologue Noah was talking about and it's a 20% better movie. Why do you need to have that whole, like, woman and her brother that maybe Oscar Isaac's in love with? Like, who the hell was that? I don't know. Um, I will say that Adria Arjona really ran her ass off in the opening scene, though. Good for her for being able to outrun Oscar Isaac. I mean, also, it's filmed really well. Like, the, oh, those chases are shot. great. Um the the glimpse over the Andes is great. Uh, the shot of them all on the boat at the end is great. Um, yeah, like good, there's some good cinematography. It's not an unenjoyable movie. No, but for me, it was like kind of a head scratcher and definitely like too long to say this little. That's a fair characterization. So bad, bad from you, bad, good from me. And now that we got that initial rating squared away, let's do a quick word from our sponsor. Come back, talk about Three Kings. Restart. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo, and their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. What do you see here? Bunkers, sir. What do you see in those bunkers? Stuff they stole from Kuwait. I'm talking about millions in Kuwaiti bullion. You mean them little cubes you put in hot water and make soup? No, not the little cubes you put in hot water to make soup. Round, round, get around, I get around, yeah, get around, I get around, I get around. We're going fast, leave the safeties on, hit them with the blinding power of American sunshine. Stay back! Uh, so this is 1999, David O. Russell's third film. Uh, it stars George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and Ice Cube as uh, three soldiers in the Gulf War. And as you astutely alluded to, Noah, um, the sort of like odd, you know, crystallized zone of time that makes this weird heist possible is, uh, well, the Gulf War, of course, notoriously short. And there's this ceasefire where the Americans are like waiting to leave kuwait and iraq um but there's still like iraqi soldiers and kuwaiti rebels all over the place but they can't fire on each other and they're at the beginning of the movie 
they are basically like strip searching like POWs and they find a man with a map in his butt of what they think are bunkers, like various hidden bunkers across Iraq. And they know that Saddam like hides wealth, most notably Kuwaiti bullion uh, bars of gold in these bunkers. And so they're like, well, if we can get back here in a certain number of days, like we basically have carte blanche to do whatever we want in this country and uh, and get this gold and go back. Um, pretty simple setup. The movie from there, this movie is odd um, because the height, the sort of like the heist and the fighting does last a while. Um, but not really the heist. I don't know what I'm saying. The fighting does last a while, but the combat is all over the fucking place. And I feel like part of that is that David O. Russell did set out to make a pretty political movie and that, like, it is pretty disorienting and war is helly in that Oliver Stone tradition. Um, Mm -hmm. But also... This one's definitely a satire, though. It has... It has satirical elements. I feel like from that, like, Adam McKay opening, like, little title sequence of... You know, this is Troy Barlow, and this is Conrad Vig who wants to be no, Troy Barlow. Right. It like has that. It knows that it's a comedy. I'm gonna I'm gonna push back and just say there's elements because it ultimately becomes a drama about doing the right thing, man. A very very stock Hollywood drama about doing the right thing. I know that's the weird turn that this movie has, where it becomes something that the that, front half that of Warner movie, Brothers would like, release. <laughs> The front half of this movie is like it runs into Ben Affleck being the second part of this movie being like, what the hell happened to you, man? Like, yeah. I don't even recognize you. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, that was a strange metaphor, but you get what but I'm I saying. But I know what you're saying. I do the podcast yeah. with you, though. Who knows what other people Who knows say? what anyone else is thinking? Um, but yeah, so you got George Clooney in there, too, as Archie Gates. Can I... And you, you talked about Ice Cube a little bit as Chief Elgin. Um Ice Cube's pretty good in this. Can I ask a strange question? Lay it on me. I think this is just worth asking at the top of this movie review. Is this movie's called Three Kings. On every promotional material you will see for this movie, you will see George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and Ice Cube, just the three of them, holding like bags of money and machine guns. But in fact, their group is of four people. Spike Jones. the fourth being Spike Jones, who is the fourth king. And the only real like reason this movie's called Three Kings is because Spike Jones sings Three Kings in the exposition of this film. Yeah. But why is it called Three Kings? And like why does Spike Jones get totally written off as like not part of the it's the four of them. He's in the platoon. It doesn't make any sense. It makes even less sense than, you know, you get to the end of Triple Frontier and you're like, what is the Triple Frontier? And then you like Google it and you're like, oh, okay, it's the it's the topographically interesting region where <laughs> Peru, Colombia, and Brazil meet. That's a very smarty J.C. Shandor move. But Three Kings, it's like gone in 60 seconds. It doesn't refer to anything. It doesn't make a lick of sense. Well, if the idea is that these three guys are going to get a lot of money and be kings, which I think is like what they intend for you to take away from the title... But the fact that their group is four people through the majority of this movie is – I think Spike Jones's feelings were probably hurt by the marketing campaign of this film, considering of how much he's in it. 
do you think that that well of hurt allowed him to later make her? I definitely. <laughs> what do you think about the original John Ridley name for the script, Spoils of War? That's kind of tag. It's kind of a cliche. Yeah. Better to go with something that makes no sense. <laughs> Better to go with something that makes no sense. Um, you also have Jamie Kennedy in here. Right. Miss you, Jamie Kennedy. You got um, Nora Dunn from SNL playing a crack reporter. Yes. Or not really a crack reporter. Katie Couric, essentially. Yeah, this like five-time uh, Emmy runner-up, it says. Right. Um, and you got Michael T. Williamson and Holt McElhaney, classic 90s character actors, just, you know, filling out those military fatigues. Yeah, it's a good cast. My question is, why are there like four 30-second sequences in this movie that are like in slow motion for no reason? That's definitely like... So, one of the... Th- if you do any research about the making of this movie at all, it was a very, very hard shoot. Um, and George Clooney and David O. Russell fought like cats and dogs. Uh, David O. Russell also under a tremendous amount of pressure from Warner Brothers because they weren't get used to giving $40 million to unproven directors to make movies like this. Because um, <laughs> if you look at his first movies, I don't think they had uh, helicopters and RPGs in them. How did he get this job? I do not know. <laughs> Um, but the result was some pretty, uh, some pretty tough shooting. Uh, but there were no, there were not organized shot lists for the action sequences, which I think you can tell. Um, the action sequences I don't think are bad. I don't think they're incoherent, but a problem I had with this movie was I felt like despite there being a lot going on and a lot of would be exciting things going on, it doesn't really have momentum. And I think that's because David O is like finding stuff. He's just like, well, if those guys are back there, then maybe we can do like something off the roof here. And it's all kind of film guy clever, but it's not like super accessible. I don't know. I think this movie's weirdly shot with like a lot of I mean, there's a lot of coverage in this movie and it feels almost like it's shot like a comedy. Like, especially that scene where, like, the car pulls up to the cow because they're, like, practicing how they're going to, like, take down this bunker. Right. And the cow just, like, fucking explodes in this middle shot. I forgot and then about they're that. all, like, really covered with blood. At the beginning. It really believes... The first half of this movie is a comedy, without a doubt. And it's shot like a comedy... The only thing that's not comedy about it is the Steven, Steven Soderbergh and like washed out colors. Right. Yep. You know, it's, got it's that traffic a shame there's not like a little, yeah, like Spanish guitar underneath or something just to give it the full traffic effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but then it does, once they do find the treasure, the gold, the bullion, um, not the, what does Spike Jones think it is? It's the thing you make soup with. Right. Not that. Then the movie decides it's a humanitarian drama about the U.S.'s responsibility and obligation to the Kuwaiti people. Right. And that's not an interesting movie. (laughs) That's like a Tears of the Sun kind of thing. Yeah, there was a point in the movie, which is when they're, they're first loading the gold into the car, and you have this sort of like bizarre... I think like effective and I'll even use the word honest 
like something in the for like these guys are hustling the gold in in the foreground and the audience might be like yeah get the gold in the car and then in the background you see like these Saddam soldiers like manhandling like women and children and and would be rebels and there's no connection between them and you're like yeah this actually is kind of a good cinematic representation of like people's priorities and what we're willing to turn a blind eye to this is working David O um but then the minute the Saddam soldiers take the like ex- make the exaggerated mistake of executing a woman while the Americans are still there then it's just like well we're gonna fight you because we can't let that stand um which like is that what I want real soldiers to do like I like I I guess who am I to say well it's, but, like, in a it's movie almost sense, becoming a bigger yeah, it becomes a bigger allegory about like America as the world's policeman, and like, should we do something just because we see it happening post World War II mentality? Yep. Um, but again, but that's not as funny as like a cow exploding on these guys, and then when they're doing their raid, being like, "We we're here, we're not going to hurt you," but he's like, "That dude's covered in blood." <laughs> yeah. Um, can we just talk about how weird it is that like this movie? was made in 1999 that there's like a movie where the script contains like multiple scenes of Iraqi soldiers um, being like, what are you doing here? What is this conflict for? Like it's all for oil. I'm going to pour oil down your throat in a movie that came out before nine 11. It's like, it's very weirdly like it's very of its time. And yet like who is making Gulf war indictment movies in the late nineties? Yeah. Now, the Gulf War, this is only like seven years after the Gulf War. Which was, you know, for, you know, uh, your American pollsters, like a very popular quote unquote war, quote unquote. Yeah, not not a like Vietnam. I mean, they referenced the fact, like, what did you want? Another Vietnam? Right. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you that it's, a, it's an interesting byproduct of its time. I also think it gets caught in that like late 90s thing of like, trying to be pokey at you know maybe the politics of something that was considered popular mm. you know but then <laughs> so you think like uh the gulf war is akin to like u2 here or something yeah it's a critique of u2 it's the u2 of wars uh-huh. you know and making the argument too like the world should not turn its back the u.s should not turn its back in the face of humanitarian crisis these are all like great things to make or great points to make uh, in cinema. Fine. But then I don't think any of the Kuwaiti Iraqi characters ever go above stereotype. Right. Of like Middle Eastern, maybe terrorist question mark. Yeah. Uh, Cliff Curtis, who's a very good actor, I think like makes sort of like the leader of the the Kuwaiti uh, crew. Right. Like, I mean, you look at him and you're like, oh, Cliff Curtis is a good actor. Like, he's doing what he can here. But, yeah, there's not, like... But the fact that maybe from Arrested Development, that actress plays his daughter... ...is, like, not a great casting choice if you want to be, like, here's a movie that accurately represents, like, what really happened during the first Gulf War. I don't know, man. I think that, like, a lot of the... There's a lot of individual things, even the sort of, like, Russell said he became obsessed with this, like, weird injury that Mark Wahlberg gets, where he gets shot through the lung in such a way that the, the air through the wound 
is like going to crush his lung when he tries to breathe and you're like and i found myself being like yeah that is interesting but like but also why there are a lot of things in this movie that are like oh interesting wow why did you decide to indict the gulf war this way why did you decide to get into the bizarre physiology of gunshot wounds but also why which makes me think that this might be a good bad high quality lot of interesting stuff going on not super watchable because it just like loses track of its priorities down the stretch yeah i don't know i thought that this movie was pretty strange and like i didn't quite like fall for anybody on screen either i wasn't terribly like i find mark Wahlberg charming sometimes in this i like really did not and it's just such a, like a why do we need like a madcap romp through the first gulf war right it didn't feel like cuz it's clearly playing with the kelly's heroes plot here definitely um it's like the but same but then to be yeah, it's almost exactly the same except for the fact that it, the humanitarian play at the end um yeah. which i don't think it it quite lands or like make these guys shitty like make them anti-heroes you know have all this shit happen to them but they don't need to be redeemed at the end they're just trying to accomplish this thing and we'll see what happens so i was kind of hoping for something in between kelly's heroes and triple frontier but it just it creates such a strange movie that i think it's going to have to be a bad bad from me I feel like we've done two movies now where I, there are individual things I like about these rather large casts. Um, but because the movies don't tee them up all the way through like real people, you almost like forget that these great actors were in them. Like George Clooney right. was in this goddamn movie and I can't really point to like a, like what George Clooney did with the part. Um Wahlberg. Yeah, there's no like good scenes of that of him George Clooneying around. And Wahlberg becomes like a goes from Dirk a Dirk Diggler thing where like the movie is right. making fun of him just two years after Boogie Nights here and like boy is he doing a lot of stereotypical stereotypical Mark Wahlberg talking. He's like calling his wife and she's like, I thought the war was over. He's like, It isn't, it isn't, honey. Okay, I gotta go, I gotta go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah, again, it's just like vacillating wildly between Hollywood ideals, not actual characters. No, I think that's super smart. That's why I gave it a bad, bad. Yeah, oh, well, I think that's smart, but I don't, I don't like it. Well, uh, okay, great. All right, so we'll talk about Kelly's Heroes now. Yeah, much like one of Donald Sutherland's tanks, we can <laughs> speed up and reverse at the same speed, go in and out of our missions. With the same with the same throttle. Like a retrofit Sherman with guns made to look bigger than they actually are. Let's Yeah, with twelve <laughs> feet of extra pipe on us. We're, let's, uh, let's keep we're ready lying. to talk about nineteen seventies Kelly's heroes. Okay. This movie was made to be in volume one of the Clint Eastwood collection. Okay. Which it certainly is. Uh-huh. <laughs> when I Googled this movie to find out where to where to get it i was immediately linked to this like six dvd set called the clint eastwood collection volume one and this is one of the highlighted films that's a that's definitely like a sign of the times like i don't they don't make those anymore they don't make these movies anymore well 
I just made Triple Frontier, but barely. <laughs> barely, and it is not having nearly as much fun as this 70 millimeter epic. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, so Kelly's Heroes is from 1970. It's directed by a man named Brian Hutton, who I was not previously familiar with. Let's look real quick at Brian Hutton's other. Oh, Where Eagles Dare is his other. What's that? I believe it's another Clint Eastwood military movie. Yep. Oh, yeah. Look at him wearing a Nazi uniform and getting away on a little blimp here. Stages a raid on a castle at night where they're holding a prisoner. Fuck yeah. Uh, Also of a similar length, also with Clint Eastwood. So, like, so, but this whole movie, though, is coming on the heels of uh, Bridge in the River Kwai and Great Escape and Dirty Dozen. Like, this is, this feels almost like a. There are some very 1970 things about it that are uh, including the the main theme, but it's also squeezing the last things out of a you know a dry rag of like approaches to war movies, right? Um, oh yeah, and in a pretty innocent approach ultimately. Certainly, this movie does not even have the baby teeth of an Oliver Stone film. No. And this movie also makes, like, the tragic 1970s filmmaking mistake of, like, putting a weird, as you said, chance... um, (laughs) An insane anachronism? An anachronistic pop song, like, over the both title and end credits. Which is called, like, the It's sort of like raindrops keep falling on my head, but it's... exactly what it's like, but a worse song. It's definitely a worse song. The Mike Crumb Congregation? The Mike Crumb Congregation, who... I have decided is the 1970 equivalent to the polyphonic spree. It's like vaguely leftist spiritual organization that also makes catchy pop music. I think that's very right. I was going to say sort of like Partridge family revivalists. Sure. Um, that's probably fair too. Yeah. But it's like about burning bridges. It's like I burn the bridges. That's of the- so much like the music cues in triple frontier are so fuck is so fucking on the nose. Right. It's like, oh, do you think they're going to need like a bridge towards right. the end of this movie? <laughs> I hope it isn't burned. Right. Uh, yeah. Because then Uncle Leo is going to be pissed. Oh, my God. Um, Let's talk about the cast of this movie. Yeah. So if Noah and I were the ages we are now in 1970, we would be like, everyone is in this movie. Um, but <laughs> It's got Uncle Leo. Archie Bunker's in this movie. Um <laughs> So yeah, it's got Telly Savalas as the uh, as the captain. It's got Don Rickles as the wisecracker because all he ever did was crack wise. It's got Carol O'Connor. Hey, crap game. Yeah, <laughs> as a character called Crap Game. Um, Carol O'Connor, as I said, Archie Bunker is the sort of crazy general. Um, who? What is Uncle Leo's real name? Len Lesser. Okay. Harry Dean Stanton plays the harmonica for a while. Oh yeah, he's like really not in this movie for being Harry Dean Stanton. A lot, there were a lot of the things with sort of the uh, the deep bench is like they would they would give some guy a moment at the end and they'd be like, you know, <laughs> you know what, Patuco, we really did it. And I was like, who's Patuco? I don't know this guy. What's going on? <laughs> What the hell are you doing here? Looking after the colonel, that's what. Shoot him and let's get the hell out of here. Shoot him, we don't get the gold. What gold? Proposition. Thought you might be interested in helping me out. Oh. I want you to set up a barrage for me. Yeah. 
If you whisper one word about the gold to these guys, I'm going to have you bounce from this outfit so fast your feet won't even touch the ground. Okay, Kelly. What is it? I want the intelligence report for this whole sector, and I need them in the next two hours. That's nice. What's in it for me? Much like all the other movies, they run into this Nazi guy that Clint Eastwood's taken captive, and he's got this like painted over gold brick on him, and then he reveals after you know half a glass of brandy that it's all in that brown building on the other edge of town. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, it's in this town in this bank about thirty miles in from this is World War Two in from the line in France where the Americans are slowly pushing towards Berlin, AKA Nancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's 30 miles from where they are now. So they'd have to go behind enemy lines to get this. And for some reason, like no one really has an issue with this plan, but they've got that time than, window again. Like you talked about, they have three days of leave right. and they're like, if we can do this and make it back, no one will ever know. Right. Yeah. Nobody has a problem with this plan. Cause they're all so bored and like without women and drink and merriment. Um, and Big Joe, uh, one, he's one of the loudest proponents of uh, previously mentioned vices. So loud that still... Telly Savalas' mic peeks throughout. Oh my God. So that loud was, that, that I kind of searched 1970s film audio capture methods to try and see if I could get any <laughs> insight into like why they couldn't like redo that audio or like how is it just like a lapel was ADR not invented in 1970 or just like, is this just like a lapel mic and you go with what telly gives you when he screams? It's a lot like Gene Hackman in Poseidon adventure. It's just like this man's going to scream and we can't help it. If it peaks, we didn't think about that. We thought he'd whisper through this war movie. Right. Yeah. But he seems to be the only one putting up any resistance to this plan, which inevitably, and I think somewhat, like this movie doesn't need to be two and a half hours long. Oh, God, There's no. There's so much of this movie that is Clint Eastwood being like, hey, here's this like pretty foolproof plan in this big budget, in this big budget Hollywood movie. Why don't we just go fucking do it? This could, and then, like, could easily be the shortest of the three and it is the longest somehow. Yeah. Like there was this moment where Clint's like talking to the third set of people trying to convince them like to do this thing. And I went to go make a snack and I came back five minutes later and they were still not convinced. Right. So that shows that your movie's a little, a little flabby. Definitely. That being said, this movie has a lot of charm, a lot of heart and like a lot of good actors having fun like whereas i thought triple frontier was like a lot of actors getting paid this one seems like a lot of actors having fun and like enjoying themselves this doesn't seem like the david o russell screaming at george clooney kind of shooting experience no i think they got to go like don rickles is having great time donald sutherland has never been happier to be anywhere donald sutherland plays uh, another bizarre anachronism. Uh, he's Oddball. he's a tank captain called Oddball, who's like living out this sort of like bohemian experience because his unit commander got decapitated, and so like now apparently nobody knows what's going on with this unit, and they can just like drink wine and like lay on picnic blankets with French women all day. Um, but the way that he talks, which is like 
you got to he's kind of like a cartoon hound dog a little bit um yeah he retires from the military and then he goes to teach at faber college uh in animal house oh. as the exact same character right. i think uh but it's very much 70s yeah donald sutherland in this anachronistic sort of like he's like he's out playing of, a hippie yeah he's out of um what's it called paradise uh the, 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 uh, apocalypse now uh-huh yeah he like came right off their swift boat and was like, I'm going to join this battalion 20 years earlier. Right. One of the super weird things about this movie, I think, is that it should, by all rights, be a commentary on Vietnam. And if you like read um, like the Wikipedia article, there's like a whole there's like a thing where it's like this movie is, of course, a commentary on Vietnam. And then you're like, but actually, it is not at all. It takes full advantage of the suppo- what's the commentary? There's none. <laughs> there's none other than it's set Vietnam during was when awesome. Vietnam was made. <laughs> yeah. It is taking a full fucking surfboard ride on the ethical simplicity of what it believes to be World War II. It's getting everything out of it. Except, let's skip to the end of this movie. Can we skip to the end? Certainly. When the... Best part. Oh my, that's a long haul. When the Panzer <laughs> tank commander like takes his share of the gold because he was the final one to surrender so they could get into the gold, uh, and he gives Clint the Heil Hitler salute and Clint's like, I don't know how I feel about that. And <laughs> then he, then he like remembers to do like, what about a forehead salute? And Clint's like, okay. Um, he can get on board with the forehead salute, but it's, it's very, very strange moment of moral compromise in a movie. That's otherwise just like dudes hanging out and being like, we can get the Nazi gold. Right. And Clint being like, all right, all right. Like unabashed Nazi, take your share what yeah, that movie is the the movie is that weird like western moment where they literally have that western soundtrack where him um oh telly savalas uh and Don, donald sutherland are walking like down that hill it's a naked like a tumbleweed rolls it's a in naked front of, riff on the leone the t- movies certainly yeah but like not in a self-aware parody kind of way like in a well this is a clint eastwood movie so it needs this scene i don't care if it's a goddamn world war ii movie oh, i thought it was kind of more self-aware than that but maybe it was again but that's it's such a baffling movie but again having a really good time with itself and not taking itself too seriously like again this is the antithesis of triple frontiers self-seriousness but I, I think it's the movie, a kind of movie that I would have just loved when I was 10 because the idea of like loud grown men whose like main source of humor is sheer aggravation like really right. would have appealed to me as a 10 year old. It's full of Telly Savalas being like, guy, why are you bombing us over here? Don't bomb us over here. I tell this guy every day not to bomb us over here. And it's like... Oh, I kind of liked his... Oh, it's for... Like when you're introduced to him, like when he's on the radio with the guy who then feels really bad because he like bombed his own guys. It's like something from Get Smart. It's like a 20-minute thing. It's a, it feels like it's, it's from a The bit definitely goes on ago. too long. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. I thought this movie was kind of fun and like definitely the easiest of these three to endure. I disagree. Oh, that's fine. Okay. 40 minutes too long. It's 40 minutes too long. The, you know, it, it's not, it's shot. 
pretty nicely because they're just in Yugoslavia and there's nothing digital. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, there's nothing digital. This movie's beautifully done. There's great special effects. There's like great practical stunts being done. There's like a lot of good military vehicles exploding. Yeah. I think they did like the absolute most they could have done with this in terms of 1970s like fun. They shot the thing in 70 millimeters. Yeah. You know, kind of we're going to have this huge thing explode in the background and that's going to be in the same take. The thing that feels dated is not how it looks, but that I imagine a bunch of like little like I imagine my dad, like a little white boy with a crew cut, like being in the audience when they do that, like five minute sequence of Donald Sutherland rolling through the tunnel that like doesn't mean anything. And it's just like five minutes of like, watch him get some Nazis. And then you get that like stereotypical, like scream that's in every movie where a Nazi's like, ah, and falls out of a tower. It's like, but there's no purpose to this at all. It's just like something to make the little boys be like, it's fun. It's war. (laughs) We love war. We love war. This is the commentary on Vietnam. (laughs) Yeah. This movie loves war and violence and big explosions and like injury lists, stunts, uh, and extras just flying through scenes. But also, like, we have to cut it a little bit for some of this, like, just not keeping track of the same stuff that Triple Frontier didn't keep track of. These characters have nothing to them. And Clint even said, like, we cut out we cut out the 20 minutes from this 150-minute movie that explained the characters. <laughs> <laughs> and they, like, forget about the gold, and there's nothing about, like, what money means to anyone they make the reverse mistake of like getting the gold too soon, which is like totally forgetting like why they're in this town that devolves into a fight pretty similar to the Saving Private Ryan fight. It's just a war movie for a long time. It's just a war movie for a long time. And they're not even like trying to like break into the bank and get out of there as quickly as possible. They're trying to like defeat 50 German guys in three tanks. Yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty they don't think about the they have no exit strategy though, which is hilarious. I think this movie might be a soft good good. Oh. Come on. <laughs> this movie's 5 hours long. At 2 This movie's too long. At 2:23. I don't think it's great great. <laughs> I just think it's I think it, it like has enough entertaining stuff in there, enough good set pieces enough like money thrown behind practical effects and stunt doubles i think this is this was definitely the most fun i had of the three and i think it it knows on a narrative sense when to introduce that final thing and it's in the climax of the movie it's not the inciting incident isn't finding the gold it's, Keep it simple. It's not be- Keep it simple, stupid. It's not because I don't like you, but I'm going to give this one a bad, bad. I don't think there's anything like That's explicitly terrible about it, but like it just it was not doing it for me. Like the the humor feels like it's from 1950, like dragged into 1970. Um, it's just it's so long. It's so like simple, and yet forgets the very simple thing that it has to do. Um, yeah. I'm going to come down on the opposite side. I think Triple Frontier is the best of these three. That's not right. but <laughs> You would say it's the worst. No, I think Three Kings is the worst. Okay. All right. All right. Um, who do you think gives the best performance 
in the 40 actors that we have to work with. Not a great genre, but should I say for for women? No, I don't think there's... If they had cut out, as they should have, the love interest from Triple Frontier, which would have made it a better movie, there literally wouldn't have been a single woman in any of these movies other than Mark Wahlberg's wife. And then 20 men in each one. Well, Nora Dunn has a big and part. She's good. She does. And then the dead body of... Uh, What's his name's wife? Right. I was really weird. She looms large. I was, re- <laughs> I was really weirded out where like Mark Wahlberg wakes up from his gunshot wound and like comes up to Cl- Cliff Curtis and is like, how you doing, man? It's good to see you. What's going on with you? And it's like, well, his wife got shot through the head like 20 minutes ago. No thanks to you. Yeah. <sighs> Who do you think? I'm going to have to. What am I going to say Clint here? Eastwood looks great in this movie. I mean, this is like, we're a year before Dirty Harry. We're just a little ways after Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Um, he looks great. Yeah. But it's he has no range. Not that I'm breaking news there. No, and he sometimes gets confused when people like try to do <laughs> jokes in the same frame as him. <laughs> the whole Donald Sutherland character, to go back to my point, is like he just all the reaction shots from Clint are like... I don't really approve of dirty hippies. <laughs> yeah, he'll be like, just like he'll be like, stop the tank, and Donald Sutherland would be like, hey, oh, let's let's slow it down there. <laughs> and then Clint Eastwood's kind of like in the same frame, being like, can you maybe take the orders a little bit faster? Otherwise, you're going to crash into stuff, and they're going to catch us. Yeah, they're ringing the church bell to like cover the hum of the motor, and here's Donald Sutherland being like, what, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. <laughs> it's so yeah. much. I'm going to give it to Donald Sutherland. I think you might be right. Kelly's Heroes desperately needs him. He's just hilarious. Like, he's always doing something. He reminded me of Val Kilmer from Tombstone. Oh, my. (laughs) Just like a totally, almost anachronistically out there supporting character. Uh Uh (laughs) He'll be your Huckleberry. He's not even begun to defile himself. <laughs> um, what do you think J.C. Shandor's next movie will be about? Yes, 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 yes. Um, I was going to say the Mueller investigation, but that's too obvious. What's something? I think it'll be like the sordid rise of like the bowling industry or something. The bowling industry? Some like niche market. About? Just the way that, like, uh, most violent years about, like, heating right. Manhattan. Like, in 1981. The, the, the oil wars of, like, Manhattan in 1980. Um, it'll be something about, like, two rival that's, bowling pin makers. That's the one for me. <laughs> Not even the bowlers, but bowling pin makers. Or maybe it'll be, like, a sports movie about bowlers. That sounds. I mean, he would relish in that the atmosphere, like the smoky atmosphere of weird bowling alleys. He would love it, and like, there's probably like a mobster who hangs out in the back, mostly white men. I was. It'd gonna, be very comfortable for him. I wa- rewatched Most Violent Year. You're right; it's slow, um, but it also might be one of the best looking movies I have ever seen. Oh, it's beautiful. It, Every shot is so meticulously. Produced. It's Bradford Young who shot Selma and was so underused in Solo, a Star Wars story. And just like, yeah, every shot is un. It's just like how, you know, you watch a movie like a period piece and you're like looking in the back for like, where's the Ford Taurus? You fuck ups. I know you forgot something. 
and like this movie just <laughs> is that what you say when you like see a, a long city street in a period yeah. movie i know there's a prius in here somewhere you amateurs <laughs> um, that's so funny but yeah most violent year is incredible um if you can ha- oh if only it had a more interesting story at its center yeah if you can hang around through like a lot of albert brooks looking concerned did you take and- my oil <laughs> yellow king yes he did yeah another glenn fleischler uh stand out <laughs> <laughs> oh man um well this was a fun category yeah it was like a very be real yeah this is very category us. um felt right yeah very very tight good idea on your part um yeah uh, ne- chance is it possible that the next time we record you and i will be in the same state I th- nay city i think nay we- apartment <laughs> I think we will probably both be in Portland. Yeah, it'll be exciting. Yeah, we'll be hanging around, or at least I will, around uh, the AWP Portland proceedings uh, the last few days of March into April. If y'all are around, let's uh, watch some movies. Reach out. And as always, support our fellow shows here on the Playlist Podcast Network. Uh, Indie Beat, I know, had a new one the other day. Adjust Your Tracking talked about the new Gaspar Noe movie, Climax, which I kind of dug and which I'm sure Noah would not. Um, so, yeah, support our fellow shows. Give us a rating on whatever platform. Yeah, support us. <laughs> and please do support us as well. Um, Give us a rating and like us on Instagram. Yeah. I'm working pretty hard to cultivate like a very specific yet nuanced voice. I noticed that you've like actually been losing sleep over how well we're doing on Instagram. Um and I'm I'm just as into it on Twitter. So yeah, find us where you find us. Uh, thanks for your continued support. And Noah, I'll talk to you next time, buddy. I can't wait, my friend. I uh, can't wait to see you in person. I can't wait to shake your hand. 